Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man who may or may not be the father of the royal baby. He is the captain. Well, he already has dual citizenship, so why don't you explain that one to me? It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Tonight, tonight, everything's going to be all right, Captain, because we are sipping on dark subject matter by our good friends at Monday Night Brewing. Garage grade, four and a half bottle caps out of five. This is a silky smooth American Imperial Stout with a high ABV of 12%. So I would recommend staying at home and pairing this with your favorite cigar and your favorite true crime garage episode. And we are paired up with this great beer by some of our good friends right here. First up, a big cheers and thanks to Jacqueline Turner and Aaron W. Big shout out to Kristen and Mike in Philly. Next up, we say hello to Tracy and her cat Fat Boy in Mountain Home, Arkansas. <laughs> well, cheers to you, Fat Boy. And a big we like your jib to Kelly in Westminster, Colorado. Next up, we have Vanessa from Inver Grove Heights, Minnesota. And we also have Tasha, who says she bought the album The Captain Made of the show music so cheers to you and cheers to everybody that chipped in with this week's beer fun yeah you can find that album on itunes and we have some other episodes and some other music and some other nonsense so check that out on itunes and that is enough of the business all right everybody gather around grab a chair grab a beer let's talk some true crime
Longview, Washington, May 15, 1985. The school bell rings. It's the end of the school day. Eight-year-old Rima Traxler leaves on foot, returning home from St. Helens Elementary School. On the way, she decides to stop at a friend's house. She wanted to show off an art project she made at school. After a brief visit, she continued on her way, walking towards her family's residence. Eyewitnesses observed her walking approximately two blocks from her family's home. Rima never arrived at her house that afternoon. She has not been seen again. Rima was a smart little girl, raised by a good mother, who taught her the dangers of talking to strangers. Little did she know, pure evil was lurking close to home and just right around the corner. Rima was last seen walking home from school. The third grader was about four feet, three inches tall and 45 pounds. She was a beautiful blue-eyed little girl with blonde hair that fell down to the middle of her back. She was wearing a pink shirt, plaid tan skirt, and white tights. When Rima failed to come home, her mother Danielle became very worried. Danielle walked to the school to retrace her daughter's steps. She saw nothing that would alert her and nothing that could offer any clue as to where her daughter was. When she returned home, she called the Longview police and reported her daughter missing. With the announcement of her child's disappearance, the police and community organized and conducted an intensive search for the little girl. But just like Danielle, they didn't find Rima, and they didn't find any clues. Despite no one coming forward saying that they saw the little girl abducted, police actually had suspects. One suspect was a friend of Rima's stepfather. The suspect was 26-year-old Joseph Condro. Investigators questioned him during their initial 1985 investigation, but there was no evidence linking Joseph to her case. Unfortunately, Rima never returned, and eventually the trail went cold. The case remained opened and unsolved. Then, over a decade later, on November 21, 1996, at 7.15 a.m., Larry Holden dropped off his niece and his fiancée's daughter at school. His niece is Yolanda Patterson, and his fiancée's daughter is 12-year-old Kara Rudd. After Larry drove off, a 1982 Pontiac Firebird pulled up to the sidewalk. The driver is now 37-year-old Joseph Condro. Both girls knew Condro. The girls actually lived together. Larry has custody of his niece and he lives with his fiancée, Janet, Kara's mother. Joseph Condro stayed for a brief time at their home. So when Condro pulled over in his car, the girls came running over to talk to him. Kara got in the car while Yolanda stayed outside. Joseph and Kara had some kind of conversation. Kara gets out of the car and tells Yolanda that she wants to skip school and go out to Willow Grove. There's a pig farm out there, and she wants to play with the piglets. Yolanda wants none of this because if she skips school, they could get caught and then they would be in trouble. 
Yolanda starts making her way to the school building. Condro drives off. The last time Yolanda saw Kara, she was walking east on Hemlock Street. The school principal is going to call Kara's mother to let her know that she was missing from school, and then Kara is never going to show up to the house that evening. Police instituted a community-wide search. Kara's mother, Janet, almost immediately suspected Joseph Condro of abducting her daughter. She called him repeatedly. He called her back, returning her call. She picked up the phone, but for some reason her answering machine picked up and then recorded a conversation in which she accuses him of abducting Kara. Everybody suspects that Kara went to the pig farm, so police are going to make contact with the owner, Pete. Yeah, he said that he wasn't home during the time frame in question, and he also said he did not suspect that anyone visited his property while he was gone. Mm -hmm. Because of Yolanda's story about seeing Condro outside of the school, police like Janet were suspicious. They questioned him. He claimed to have an alibi, but there was no one to back up his alibi. In fact, there was at least one person that came forward and said his alibi was false. Here's another case that we're missing a kid that knows Condro, and he's a suspect, Mm -hmm. but we have no body, we have no evidence, and we have a crappy alibi. So police start talking to everyone that knows Condro. They need to get a handle on this guy. They talk to his ex-wife, Julie West. And they learn a good deal of info from her. One thing of importance, she said that the same day that Kara went missing, she was in Joseph's car. When she went to move the seat back, she saw a hairbrush under the seat. Mm. And she said that it looked like a hairbrush that would belong to a little girl. So she said that she later called Kara's mother and they talked about the brush. Her mother said Kara carried around a hairbrush just like the one that she saw in Condro's car. So Condro's ex-wife, Julie West, gets into his car the day that Kara goes missing, sees a brush, talks to the mother. They confirm that it's possibly Kara's brush. Mm -hmm. Now she's going to go to police with this information. Yeah, and the weird thing here is uh, after she's done talking to the police, she gets a call from Condro. He wants to know what she told police, what is going on with the investigation, and what do the detectives know. Right. Julie tells him very little, and then he threatens her with bodily harm, telling her she is not to talk to the police again. Well, God bless Julie, because she tells a detective about this phone call, and the detective goes to the home of a judge to secure an arrest warrant for Joseph Condro. They arrest him that day for tampering with a witness. They lock him up at the county jail, booked him on $25,000 bail, and that amount soon doubled. Because the law was finally catching up to Condro, he's also arraigned on child molestation and rape charges. This is from a completely different incident. And it was while he was sitting there in jail waiting for trial on these different charges that police are talking to everyone that knows Condro. They learned that he liked to hang out sometimes at a vacant, decaying house on Mount Solo. This is just west of Longview. On January 4th, 1997, Less than two months after Kara's disappearance, police were searching a remote wooded hillside at the Mount Solo area. They came upon a ravine and spotted a rusted red Volkswagen with no tires or wheels. Inside the vehicle, they found Kara's black Reebok shirt. This car was tipped up, so it's it's lying on its side. But underneath the car, they find the body of a female with her head toward the rear and her feet beneath the passenger side door. 
Officers used a winch to tip the car back up, and they brought out forensic technicians. They took all relevant samples before cutting down a tree, a nearby tree, to remove the Volkswagen from the immediate scene and process it further. The upper part of the torso was badly decomposed, and several of the ribs showed evidence of animal predation. But the lower half of the body had been well-preserved by being completely under the car. Underpants and a pair of black shorts matching the description of what Kara was wearing were on the body. After collecting samples in the immediate vicinity, the crime scene techs loosened, loosened the dirt under the corpse so that they could slip two body bags over it, one from each end. They were taped together and sealed, and the body transported to the state crime lab. Dental records confirmed the body as Kara's. The county coroner, Gary Grieg, declared that she died from homicidal violence by unknown means. Pieces of physical evidence, including all of the clothing found on and around the body, were sent to an independent lab in San Diego. Semen deposits on Kara's body and clothing tied Joseph Condro directly to the murder. Now that they have evidence against Condro, he's already sitting in prison. They're still looking at him for two other crimes. So for two years, Condro refused to cooperate with investigators, even though his DNA linked him to Kara's body. But then the trial begins, and in a bombshell courtroom announcement, Condro pled guilty to raping and strangling Kara and killing Rima Traxler 14 years earlier. In his confession, he said he saw Rima when he was driving to a local store to buy beer and cigarettes. Joseph said he took Rima to a swimming hole on Germany Creek in Longview and strangled her. He claimed he buried her in a shallow grave near the location. He agreed to deal with prosecutors, which allowed him to confess to murdering both Rima and Kara and avoiding the death penalty. Investigators searched the area in 1999, but were unable to locate any sign of Rima's body. God bless murder victim Kara Rudd because of her courageous fight to live and the forensic evidence collected because of that fight, her killer Joseph Condra was caught and the murder of Rima Traxler years earlier was finally solved. When asked about Joseph Condro, the county prosecutor who participated in the legal proceedings against Condro said, quote, I have only twice in 25 years felt the presence of true evil. When Condro and I would look at each other in the courtroom, it was a feeling that there was nothing there in those eyes. I just never got any shred of humanity from him. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. 
So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. 
I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right. Cheers, mates. And make sure you go to the website, truecrimegarage.com. We have three different tank tops that are available for pre-order right now. So check those out. Cheers to you, Captain. And cheers to the great John Douglas. Mm-hmm. So Mr. Douglas was kind enough to sit down with us and discuss some of his expertise, particularly in this case. And if people don't know who John Douglas is, he's responsible for what? He's largely responsible for the what is typically known as the Behavioral Science Unit at the FBI. Which has inspired movies like Silence of the Lambs, the series Mindhunter, and many others. And just like so many times before, John Douglas went to the prison and interviewed Joseph Condro. Put the lotion in the basket. All right, so it's time for everybody to say bye to me because I wasn't invited to the interview. Well, maybe next time, Captain. Now, here's my interview with John Douglas. Regarding the Joseph Condro case, what can you tell us about the Mount Solo area and why police were searching there and what they found? The area where where the where the disposal site, you know, occurred, uh, that's where they would find uh, one of the victims. Uh, in a um, you know in a Volkswagen uh, that he placed in uh, placed in, a, in I think it was a, a conceal a good concealed area to dispose of the uh, you know of the body and uh, Condro as far as uh, getting like into his history uh, too he was when I did the interview with him it, it was pretty much predictable that one day that he would be perpetrating crimes uh, like the ones that he that he did he was he was abused as a child um he had al- alcoholic parents he and two uh, an alcoholic was a uh, was a bully what uh, what was interesting with him was that as he grew older he uh, stayed fixated on on very very young children he was fixated on him when he was young, but then as he grew older, he just stayed fixated with you know with these young children. the The crimes that he perpetrated, they got him on two. They think that he could have done as many as seven. I think that what makes the case so unusual with him, I, I really didn't have, I didn't understand it, and I had to ask him the question: Is you're killing your, your friend's children? Why? I mean, why are you killing your your friend's children? And he said, it's just, uh, you know, it's just easy. He says, by attacking strangers, you have control, uh, control issues and because they'll fight back. But by going after my friend's children, uh, that uh, I would not have that, uh, have that problem. 
I said, yeah, but then you'd be an obvious, uh, obvious suspect, wouldn't you? And he said, I was a suspect, but they never could come up with anything. Plus, at the time, as far as post-defense, what he would do is he would participate in searches. He would console the parents of, uh, you know, of the victims. So he may have been under suspicion, but they really never, they never looked at, you know, him, you know, hard until, obviously, when he found the body. And his only mistake is when they found the body in that hidden in the in the Volkswagen was that he didn't do a better job of concealing the body and that he got caught. Nothing as far as remorse towards the victims or the families uh, of the victim is just that uh, you know that he got caught. After months, prosecutors offered Condro a deal so he could avoid the death penalty if he gave a full confession. Can you talk about his confession and some of the details that he offered up? He was offered a deal to to escape the death penalty, although they, they still believed that he was responsible for others. And, and even after they made the deal, they were still trying to, because he made a deal just on on the two. His M.O., you know, was to, obviously, he's close, you know, close to the, uh, you know, the children. But the, the details, in fact, I, I actually did uh, this uh, for MSNBC, and they, they really didn't, they cut out all the details of the crime itself. It's how he... He he tricked uh, one of the victims, for example. They had a code word, uh, and the family said, "Okay, now unless you say the word, person says the word unicorn, that's going to be our our, our password. That, that feel free to go with whomever is asking for that password." Unfortunately, he knew what the password was, and he picks up this uh, the girl and he says, "Young child," and he says he knows. You know, he's going to kill her. There's no doubt about her. As soon as she got into the car, I'm going to, to kill her. He takes her to this remote area. He goes through all the the details, the specific details, the gory details of of how he was raped, raped the victim, how he uh, strangled the victim, tried to drown the victim, how difficult it was to strangle. You know, he's telling John it takes a lot of upper body strength to kill somebody through manual strangulation. And he said, I didn't, I didn't uh, know that. And then even after doing all that, he still decided to you know, bash her, her head in with a, uh, you know, with a, a, larger, a, a large uh, branch. It was just kind of re- remarkable that, again, it, it's the uh, kind of emotionalist, uh, uh, no, no empathy. Uh, the only time he shows some kind, of, some kind of emotional reaction was really about himself and about his, his own children, his upbringing, but like even with his own children, I brought up the question. I said, "What if somebody would uh, would go after your children?" And he said, "Oh, I, you know, I would, uh, you know, I want them punished. I, I would, you know, I would kill them." So, so he's just coming from two different points of view, and he, and what he did too, as as so many of them will do, is they use. They don't always want to accept responsibility a hundred percent, so they'll blame, they'll they'll project it and project it on sometimes the victim, sometimes. Children's parents, you know, maybe they're too too trusting. So I had a case in Florida where I was interviewing a rapist, and he was, you know, telling me that um, I said, "Why did you pick this particular victim?" And he said, "Well, she was in sitting on a bar stool in a diner at nighttime, and it was obvious she didn't have a, any underwear on, so she was, uh, man, she was looking for it. You know, it's, it's it's like her fault. You find this so much with people like Condro and, and others." With him, and I knew I already knew the answer to it. It was really a crime of of power, where he 
never thought he had power. But he he felt in his life he was like uh, like one grain of sand on a beach of billions and billions of sands and uh, grains of sand. And how can this inadequate nobody become a somebody? And 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 so he had a lot of this aggression and his how he could become a somebody, how he can retaliate, you know, for his poor upbringing. And those in his mind who did him wrong was to retaliate by by killing you know killing others but again he's the only only uh, serial offender i've ever interviewed who attacked attacked uh his friends his friends children which was just so so bizarre he's serving a life sentence and you went to interview him in prison just like you've done with so many other killers how do you prepare for these types of interviews the preparation for the interviews is very different than what you see on television and what, and even in Mindhunter, where they go into the prison and uh, they have a tape recorder on and taking notes. When when I do the interview, I go into the police files first, the medical examiner's reports. I have all that. I, I look at the circumstances of how he was apprehended, if he gave a confession, did he volunteer the confession, or was it, or they just kind of you know, worked them over for a period of of time. Uh, when I get to the prison itself, I then go into the into review the police records, the file, the files, I should say, in corrections what, that they have built up over the past years. You know, on him, see if he how he's being analyzed by psychologists. Uh, you know, there. And so, when I walk into to the room, I will not have any any notes. I won't have notes. I won't have tape recorders or anything, anything like that. Because I, I found early on when we did that, when we interviewed, say, uh, Charles Manson, uh, Ed Kemper, we had a small tape recorder and it was a little cassette. And they, were, they didn't like that. They were very, very paranoid. Uh, they, they live in a, uh, and they should be paranoid, living where they are in a prison where you, you can't turn your back on someone they, without fear of being being uh, being knifed, they don't want to be perceived as a snitch or anything like that. So, by having a tape recorder or notes, they, you know, what are you going to do with this stuff? You know, you know, and and so finally, I decided no, this, I have to go in there. We had a 57-page protocol, interview protocol, that was developed by, uh, with us and Dr. Ann Burgess at Boston College. She in the show Mindhunter is the Wendy. But really, in reality, Ann was not a psychologist telling us how to do the interviews. We knew that. She was helping us on the academic side, developing the, this instrument, 57 pages, thousands of questions concerning the victim, victim selection, uh, the subject, the pre-offense, post-offense behavior, all that stuff. So we would fill that out. That would be pretty much a, a good chunk of that would be filled out before going in, and then the rest you'd have to memorize. And that all had to do with with uh, the crime, the crime and the uh, the uh, offender. And the approach would be more conversational. It's not. It's always positive. You may even give them kind of some false hopes that you know the the warden knows you're cooperating with us here. We're helping. What you're doing is helping us. Who we're receiving cases from all over the world now, and and we're going to apply what we learn from you and others to these other cases, seeing if there are in fact the similarities that can cross over into these other you know other crimes. So you do you do that, 
if you do it right, they, they don't want you to leave. They don't want you. Uh, you're, you begin to even tell them as you're gaining an experience. They want to know about themselves. What do you think? What made me tick? What? what? And then some of them are, are very arrogant, uh, very arrogant, that uh, bragging about how, the crimes that they did, and that you, you know, that uh, they're so good. Uh, yeah, they made a mistake. They got caught, but that was it was a fluke. If I can go off a little bit, I interviewed a, an airplane skyjacker one time who was shot. Uh, he was shot at Kennedy Airport. He skyjacked an air, airplane from uh, L.A. T- to New York. He said, John, you, you never could have catch me if I was a fugitive. You have to cut off all contact with your families. Christmas time, we know Christmas time, the holidays, FBI police, you know, they're looking for mail and and I said, oh, well, we, really, we can't catch you? No. I said, well, I'll just listen. His name was Gary Trapnell, and he wrote a book called The Fox is Crazy, too. And, and he, uh, I said, Gary, you went off on the deep end uh, crime-wise when your, when your dad died. Your dad was really a military hero. He, he's buried at Arlington Cemetery. And I, I actually went to his grave to, and, and saw where he was buried, and he was shocked that I had done that. So now he's just looking at me. Now, you're telling me that we can't, uh, can't catch you. Because you're just so swift, you know, you're a lot smarter than us. I said, what if I told the FBI or police, I said, at around the time of your, uh, around the holidays, Christmas holidays, uh, and around your dad's birthday and the date your dad died, that we should search, uh, set up a surveillance uh, in Arlington Cemetery where your dad is buried. As I'm saying that, I don't even complete the sentence. He starts shaking his head side to side, smiling, and he says, you got me. And he says, you did it, right? And he says, yeah. And he says, you know, I, I, I did it. And so those are the kind of things. And, and after a while, you kind of get good at it. You start, you start seeing these patterns. So the offender, they start asking you about, the, they want to know about, the, you know, you know themselves, or how was I created, and and why do you think I did the things that uh, that I did? So I'll do that, but I'll also tell them about the crime that I where I don't know anything about the crime, other than I'm here to learn about. But I'll tell them about themselves at, at around the time the crime was committed, the behavior leading up to the crime, what was going on in their life. What they did after the after the crime, based upon you can't do it on every case, but it's based upon how that crime is interpreted, interpreted you know you know by me looking at it and reviewing you know all of the material. It's interesting. It's interesting for me. Interesting. Interesting as well for them. And uh, that created by doing that, they ended up creating a criminal profiling and went from a program to a major unit within the FBI. That's still. It's even grown today. It's even bigger than it was when, when I was in. What are you hoping to learn about the killer during these interviews? I'm trying to learn the whys of the behavior. This is the formula I've used, and I've mentioned in this book and other books, why plus how equals who. Well, now we have the who. In this case, it's not an on-sub case, unknown subject case. We got the guy. Why Why and hows of, of the behavior? And see, you know, is there anything that he can tell us that uh, that I can apply to another, you know, other cases. I mean, what he's telling us, for example, injecting himself into into the uh, like investigation or, or participating in searches. If you notice in the in the same book, The Killer Across the Table, Joseph McGowan, 
did the same thing. He was school teacher when he killed a brownie, a Joan Delisandro. Uh, so we see see a pattern, uh, you know, like that, uh, you know, as well. And so a lot of these cases, you go in and you kind of know, uh, you're not expecting to get a whole lot of, of information out of them, but there may be a question like, just one question you, you just, you need to know that could really help you. I'll give an example, uh, Dennis Rader, the BTK Strangler. Um, he's on in this book. He's in a, uh, another book I, I did because I interviewed him. And I did the cases over the years from when he first killed in the 70s until 80, in the 80s. He was apprehended in the 90s, but I, I interviewed him. I wanted to know why he stopped for years at a time. You know, that's I, I, because in law enforcement, we think, oh, the guy moved to another area uh, or he's incarcerated or he died. He just couldn't stop. No one can commit the kind of crimes that the BTK was committing and just stop. What happened, Dennis? Why did you stop? He said, one day I came home from work early. It was lunchtime. I decided to put the victim's clothing on. He would, uh, souvenirs and mementos, he would keep the clothing of the victims. And he would cross-dress in the victims, and then he would put a plastic mask over his face, and then he would draw in, like, lipstick and uh, uh, eyebrows, the nose, and he would then reflect his image in a mirror. And sometimes he would take pictures, you know, of himself. Well, on this one day, guess what? He's married, has two children, living in about a 1,200 square foot house, a little tiny house where he has all these mementos and belongings of victims secreted, hidden from the rest of the family. His wife walks in on him and, and so what the hell is this? It scares the hell out of him, and he says, well, I got this problem, I, this cross-dressing. He didn't tell her that the clothing is from his victims, nor did she realize that she was married to the BTK Strangler. So that, he said, John, that that scared the hell out of me. I thought, you know, for sure, uh, you know, that you know, this may leak out or she may tell somebody who then goes and tells the police. So he stopped for a couple of years. And, he, and then, once again, he did it. He went a couple of years, but then he did it again. And and uh, his, got caught for the second time by his wife. His wife almost let him, left him and scared the daylights out of him. So he did, he did stop a couple of more years and then went into hiding again. And then the last time that w- would create his apprehension and cause his apprehension was that there was a lawyer who was writing a um, a book about the BTK Strangler. And in his mind, I mean, the thinking is crazy. If anyone's going to write a book, it's going to be me. He says, well, who's going to, how are you going to publish a book? He says, well, I'm going to write the book. I'm going to hide the book. And who knows, maybe 100 years from now, they'll find it someplace where I'll bury it. And uh, they'll realize I was the BTK, the BTK, uh, you know, strangler. So this, this um, lawyer, by writing that book, spurred on um, Dennis Rader, the BTK strangler, and then he started communicating with not just only the lawyer, but with the press, as well as um, TV stations. And then he made a a, a flagrant error when the police, uh, he asked the police if he could, uh, if he he sends a floppy disk uh, to them uh, to prove that he's the BTK, uh, like pictures of evidence, things like that, which would be evidence, but like crime scene photos that he took. <clears throat> would you be able to, to trace this back to him, he asked. And, of course, the police said no. Well, he submits the floppy. They bring in 
computer guys, and you really need, didn't have to be much of an expert. As soon as they put it in a floppy disk and they see that uh, Dennis Rader's name is president of Christ Lutheran Church in Wichita, uh, Wichita, Kansas, how smart he thought he was, uh, he got caught by making a dumb mistake. But the point is, going back to the interview, you go in and just, you know, wanting to ask just certain things that, that people haven't figured out, but things that can, and, and is there anything we can learn to prevent prevent this from occurring you know maybe do we see a trend in their backgrounds of i mean what were they like as children were there were there red flags forensic flags as a young kid that maybe a school teacher could have picked up on anything like that and we started seeing that in these interviews some flags such as animal cruelty we saw a trend in that in early as the early 1980s and it's not until just a year ago a year ago that now after all these years that the fbi has a a category, animal cruelty, in the Uniform Crime Report. So every year when the police fills out that there were crimes in their cities, they, uh, they'll have that category because they recognize that, that, that there is a, a, oftentimes a stepping stone from animal cruelty to violent behavior. Did you find any animal cruelty in Condro's background? Yeah, Condro, yeah, Condro had uh, animal cruelty his background. I'm trying to think specifically what he did. Uh, they don't always have it, but, but he. There were some early on in in uh, in his life. With, I think it was dogs or cats, and he was also a, a bully in school as well as. In fact, the other the other ones we interviewed as well in in this particular book, we found the uh, animal cruelty in their background. I, I speak at the SPCA in Canada the last couple of years, and they can investigate. Uh, they have an investigative arm in their S- SPCAs. They have s- s- seen links as well between this animal cruelty and this progression from elementary school. They, they note this. They follow it along, and, and sure enough, you start getting into uh, high school. You start seeing crimes progress and, and violent, violent types of crimes progress. Did he ask you what you thought made him a killer? It's like so, and so many of them do. With Condro, it was, it's the life. It, it, you cannot say, and I like same thing with Condro, that uh, Condro, what you did is, is not excusable. For, for what you, you have the ability to make choices. But I can understand because how you were raised, you were pretty much abandoned, neglected, neglected as a, as a child. You turn to alcohol at an early age, uh, and again, there was there was this uh, cruelty in his mind toward him from family, schoolmates. Uh, so, it, so it was it was predictable that something like this would happen. Not that everyone's going to grow up to be, in his case, a serial killer, but it depends on individually how this person responds. A person can respond by internalizing it and turn to alcohol, drugs. He did some of that, but some of them go so far as commit suicide. Others may survive, depending if they have a significant person comes in contact with the with them. But it has to be early on in, in their you know in their life. With him, as he got older, you can't change him. You can't you can't rehabilitate at that point in time. And because and what I've said is you can't really rehabilitate someone who's really not habilitated, you know, to begin with. I mean, you're trying to get him back to when, to what? Uh, I mean, his whole life has been has been a, a, a hell in, in their minds, and then the crimes that they committed. I mean, it's t- in their way of thinking, 
they're justified. It's justified as poor me. It's, poor, it's always a, a poor me, not the poor victim. It's poor me. With Joseph Condro, do you believe that an admitted child killer could go from 1985 to 1996 without killing? No, I, no, I don't. You have to look at, at deep into the case, but to go that long was it with Condro? No, there's others, and and he hinted during the uh, the interview. At first, he says, "You know, I can't talk about other cases." But then I, in, I asked him during the interview, "Are there are there other cases?" And he said, "Yes, there are other cases." And, the, and I know that and the police have been trying to solve them. You just can't turn it off. They used to say it was like burnout. There'd be a burnout uh, factor, and uh, there, no, there isn't any, uh, you know, any burnout because, and and with sexually motivated crimes, they thought there was uh, that that was the connection that it's a sex crime. So they, there'll be this burnout. The person gets older. It's not true. It's not. Uh, there may be sex involved in the case. These are crimes of power and, and anger and dominance, and it's fueled by by fantasy. And, and most of them have a. A very early fantasy life of what they want to do if they have the opportunity uh, for to committing a crime. To, uh, Dennis Rader had it, you know, Condro had it too. And the fantasies are sometimes, from an evidentiary standpoint, uh, they may write out uh, their, their fantasies in books, or they actually will draw drawings like Dennis Rader did of um, of what he would, how he would torture his victims. And the fantasy, the fantasy is better than reality with, uh, you know, with them, uh, like Condro, like Raider, like some of the others and the current, uh, the current book, because in fantasy, everything works perfectly. They're, they're the, they're the, the writer, the producer, the director, uh, and, uh, the actor and, and they, it's perfect. But in, in the reality, when they perpetrate the crime, they'll tell you this, Things didn't go, you know, as planned. I didn't expect the victim to fight back as hard as the, uh, you know, as she did, or, you know, or he did. I didn't, I didn't expect. I didn't realize it would, it would take this much strength to, uh, to manually strangle. I wasn't prepared for the victim to start, you know, crying and sobbing, begging for their life. I, 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 I wasn't prepared, you know, to hear, you know, you know, to hear that. So it, it just never. It's never as good as the fantasy. So. Therefore, if it's not as good as the fantasy, they keep trying. They keep trying to perfect the crime and, and reach a point where one day it'll be just everything will be perfect. Uh, because like Dennis Rader and, so, and the other and the other ones too here, here it, their real fantasy would be if they could have a a, a, a victim, whatever their victim preference is, captive. And as a slave type of thing, and do as they please with the do as they please with the victim. You see it on the West Coast. You had Lake and Ng. Your listeners will probably heard of them, Lake and Ng. And and we've had uh, in this in this uh, current book, Todd Colehap, who's kept the victim uh, in, a, in a storage container for a period of two two months or so down in, in South Carolina. That's the scenario that they're looking for. That, that's what Dennis Rader really wanted to do, uh, you know, you know him, you know himself. But uh, it never worked out. Uh, it never worked out that way. You've been face to face with some of the most notorious killers and just some real, real life monsters. What, in your opinion, is the appropriate punishment for the worst of the worst? For the worst of the worst, we're, we're, ta- we're, we're talking about. We have plenty of uh, in, uh, a series of. I say a series of crimes or a mass 
mass crime, mass murder, things like that. I, I, I believe, I, and I, eye for an eye on those types of uh, cases. But it has to be, like you say, the worst of the worst. When, when I, when Scott Glenn, the actor, came back to Quantico, I, I, I made him listen to a tape that I had from two rapists out of uh, California named Bitteker and Norris. Scott Glenn was living up in Idaho, and he was, you know, he didn't believe in you know, the death penalty. And um, I let him listen to the tapes because these two rapists were now rehabilitated back into society, which was a joke. And their fantasy, that unbeknownst to the to the people who released them, was to rape and murder teenagers for every year of a teenager's life. So they started. At 13, it would go up to 19 years of age, and they kill. I think it was about six, five or six, and and what uh, was worse of the worst, it was that they would torture the victims and audio tape the torturing. Uh, and Bitteker's nickname was Pliers Bitteker. That's his nickname in prison when I interviewed him, and. Uh, uh, but by that he would, they would use these different tools to torture, and I, I could, I couldn't. I have a hard time listening to it when I would train police, and I only played it for really not that long for Scott Glenn, who got real emotional. He said, "John, I, did, I didn't believe in the death penalty, but I said I could see where it can apply in a case like this because this is really, you know, uh, you know, horrific." Uh, so. I feel strong about that, but then since I've left the bureau, I've helped free uh, Amanda Knox. I was involved in that case. I helped uh, uh, Damian Eccles, Jesse Baldwin, uh, Jesse Miss Kelly, and Jason Baldwin in the West Memphis Three case, where three eight-year-old boys were killed. They were falsely accused of killing them. I've been involved with John A. Ramsey going into the case, thinking there's a good chance the Ramseys were responsible, but. Looking at the case, working, testifying uh, in the grand jury, they had nothing to do with the, you know, with that uh, case. They've been, re, you know, revictimized. So then I, I see, and I was just on a panel up in New York two weeks ago with with Amanda Knox and uh, Damien Eccles, uh, you know, discussing you know their you know their cases. And here these these people, you know, unfortunately, there was no evidence. There was nothing forensically linking either either of them to the to, to the uh, to the case. It was police using theories to drive the investigation. And when any time there was any forensic evidence taking them away from their theory, they would ignore that evidence. They would they would ignore it. And the theory, like with Damon and even with Amanda Knox, was that this, these were some kind of satanic murders. With Damien Eccles, it was in the early 90s, and people, police particularly, uh, were attending seminars on satanic murders. They had pictures of kids on, on um, milk boxes saying there's 50,000 kids are being abducted. We don't know where they are. You know, they're like, this is, you know, making it sound like it's a satanic, you know, satanic, uh, you know, murders. And the same thing with, with Amanda Knox, with her, her prosecutor. Same thing was trying to make this into a satanic murder because he did this before in the Monster Florence case, where Douglas Preston, the author, he uh, he was going to arrest Douglas Preston. He thought Douglas Preston was the Monster of Florence. So this is who she was dealing dealing with. So then I see those cases and I I, I get concerned. So you you better have more. You better have 
forensic evidence, and you better not rely just on some jailhouse snitch or rely on uh, eyewitness eyewitness uh, testimony, uh, which is uh, is faulty. And then you got to watch even the collection and the collection and preservation of evidence to make sure that was done, you know, correctly. And so I, I really, it, it, if you're going to use it, I mean, I'm satisfied with with life without parole, ever having parole. Uh, but unless unless that inmate kills a guard, then you got to execute him. If he kills a guard in, in the prison, because you have to go in these prisons to see how unruly they can be, how dangerous of a, a position it is. And if a guy is in there for you know, life in prison, if he can't get the death sentence, I mean, what's to stop him from killing a guard or killing another, another uh, you know, inmate? But it has to be held for just certain types of, you know, certain types of, uh, you know, of cases. Uh, but not, uh, yeah, but I, I have questioned some of these, some of, since I retired from the Bureau, I just wondered if when we got cases, if the evidence was collected properly, if the medical examiner, in fact, was uh, certified, or the, I should say, forensic pathologist was certified. And what I've seen since then, because when I was in the Bureau, I couldn't do cases for the defense. Uh, and so we just can't do it. But now I, every once in a while, I'll get a case, see a case. And, and uh, you know, sometimes, no, they're, they're guilty of sin. But other times you'll see, and oh, my God, this is uh, it's pretty bad. But they're, uh, everyone's looking for DNA today. Well, DNA or the DNA will free them. Well, not every case has DNA. You're having the CSI effect with jurors uh, looking, waiting for the DNA. Okay, present the DNA. Well, there may not be, you know, DNA. It may not be DNA to help free somebody, you know, from prison who may be uh, may be wrongfully convicted. And I, so it changed my attitude because I. I when I first started, I said, oh, yeah, everyone, I'm innocent. And, oh, yeah, yeah, you're innocent. Everybody, you had a, a prison full of innocent people. But then you start seeing, you know, that um, uh, you know, with certain indiv- certain cases, certain individuals, certain departments, you question, you question, uh, you know, the, uh, you question them uh, if they've done really a, a capable, credible, and, you know, honest job. What would you consider to be your most successful interview, and why? They've all, every one of you get a little bit different. Kemper was good. Ed, Ed Kemper was one of the early ones. When why? And the reason because he's so smart. Uh, he has 145, uh, you know, IQ. So, so he he, was, he could be very introspective, and and he's and he's articulate. He was very good. The one in this current book, Todd Colehep, another guy. I mean. Who committed very unusual crimes? He would retaliate against someone to get even, and just don't cross his path or cross him up. He'll he'll come back and 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 he was very introspective. I had him write fill out actually the fifty-seven page form, and he and he gave me that plus plus a heck of a lot a lot more. And uh, you just learned. You, can, you just learned so much uh, from him. But everyone gives you something. But of the best, I mean, like Manson, he's all right. But you pretty well have a good handle on Manson when you when you go in there, you know. And, and you can see some of the antics he played with me. He did at the George Spahn Ranch, where he, George Spahn Ranch t- preaching to his followers. He sat up on a, a rock 
Whereas with me, he sits up on top of a chair uh, or, or in, from the chair to a credenza. And you let him do it. He's five feet two. I'm six foot two. And, and I, I don't want to intimidate. I want him to talk. You know, to talk friendly, but you're not gonna you're not gonna learn a whole lot. You know, fr- you know, from him. Uh, maybe what you learn from him is, is the the charismatic personality that he has. Whereas then you can see that passed over into other crimes similar, such as Jim Jones in Guyana, the charismatic personality, uh, or the Waco, Texas, and and so you, you see that how you can have this charismatic, articulate personality, uh, in his case, kind of almost like uh, a prophet, looked like a, a prophet, plays a little bit of the guitar. But, he, but really, he was primarily interested in sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I mean, that was pretty much it. And he had a lot of the, we call these gopher personalities, these young kids looking for something in life that they're, that is better than where they're coming from. The, even though their families, the majority of them were fairly well-off families, and that's what they were rebelling against. And he just kind of simplifies life. And he he wasn't big on the use of drugs, but he would would uh, administer drugs to everyone else, kind of orchestrate things. And then with women, he would have sex with the women, but then he would have the women, uh, and he would script them, like fantasizing like they were having sex with like their father, and he was like this father. This father, uh, you know, you know, image. So you, so you get, you, you, you just experiencing his personality, and and we interviewed some of the Manson family members, Squeaky Fromm, Sandra Good, uh, you know, Tex Watson. We've interviewed, interviewed. You can see, you can see these kind of people, how the, these gophers, how they can easily be. Yeah, you know, easily be be manipulated, uh, you know, by someone who's criminally smart. Uh, you know, he spent the majority of his life in prison, and uh, and here these kids are just coming from pretty much you know, upper class, middle class families, and and can be easily. Uh, uh, manipulated and dominated by a guy like Manson. Do you think that Tex Watson was trying to take over the leadership role from Charles Manson? I don't know. I don't. I, I, we never got that, you know, from him. You know, he certainly was one of the smart ones. He was a, a smart, you know, kid at the time, and uh, that never came across. Uh, yeah, but but he too. You start wondering. He, as you probably know, he's a minister at the, in prison, uh, and uh, he's been on that for for years. What we found when you ask when you ask people, well, if you had a, uh, the violent, potentially violent people or the violent people, what jobs, if you could do it again, would you like to have? And they would like to be ministers and counselors and of uh, some type and law enforcement. You know, like you know, psychological counselors, and, and when you think of it, these are positions of uh, power. Uh, you're you're listening to people's weaknesses, and and you can, you can really take advantage. You can take advantage of people uh, like that. We've seen people in those businesses I just mentioned who have done exactly like that for real, and and so here you have, and that, that's what makes them attractive. So, lo and behold, we got Tex Watson. Uh, minister, of course, he's trying to get out of prison to be paroled. He should stay right where where he is. 
for the rest of his life. And you got David Berkowitz up in, uh, well, he was Attica when I interviewed him, but I'm not sure where he is now. But, but he uh, he's also uh, one of these so-called ministers. But you can see why. You can see why he would be, he was definitely looking for this power when he was perpetrating those crimes up in New York. When I pulled out the New York Daily News and I showed him, that son of Sam terrorizes New York City. I mean, his eyes, blue eyes, just kind of lit up. And he's looking at me. Then he looks at my partner, who was doing the interview you know, with me back back and forth. And, and to see if, you know, we're not trying to pull the wool over his eyes. You know, that 100 years, uh, David, everyone's going to know you. No one's going to know me, but everyone's going to know you, the son of Sam of New York City. And uh, I just kind of, he just kind of, you know, opened up. So everyone, you get a little bit something, but uh, some a little bit. You know, some of the the ones that are are fairly smart. Dennis Rader is not smart. Dennis Rader was lucky. Uh, he did, he wasn't really that uh, you know that intelligent, and and he got caught making a dumb mistake. Sometimes they they get caught because they feel like they're invincible. Uh, they can do anything, and they're just so much smarter than police. And that's usually the, the time we catch them is when they they start doing whatever they're doing, the crimes they're committing, maybe with more frequency, but they're becoming more of a risk taker. And then they, that's unfortunately, we have to wait for that time before they can be uh, be identified. One thing I've always wanted to ask you about, John, and this is because I don't think that the general public has a great understanding of how important this is when you're trying to profile a criminal. Could you explain to us how important victimology is when you're putting together your criminal profile? That's a good good question on vic- victimology, and because and why it's a good question too is is because when police submit a case, oftentimes they just kind of skim over the background, you know, of the victim. They don't provide enough, in, you know, information uh, on the victim. I'm trying to give a, give an example. A case a case comes in. And uh, they may they may say, well, the girl, the woman, yes, she, she was promiscuous or something, or uh, you know, what, what what do you mean? I mean, what do you mean by that? Or what we have to have years ago, years and years ago, I know my dad, mom were alive, and I, I was a kid. There was a show, This Is Your Life, and someone would come out behind the screen and start talking about uh, their life to. to to the, uh, and you're trying to, you're supposed to guess who this person is. And when I ask for police, I say, I tell police to do victimology. You have to find out everything about this victim. I want to know, I'm trying to figure out why this victim was a victim of a crime. Was it, was it, uh, he or she a victim of opportunity, uh, in the wrong place at the wrong time? Is there something that the victim was, was involved with, uh, you know, here that increased the, uh, the risk level. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, say a woman is driving down a highway, runs out of gasoline. Uh, a, a trucker come by, or someone in the car offers offers a ride, shows up missing, and finding a body. She's dead. So we ha- we start off with a, and that's a difficult case, by the way, to solve because we st- we start off with a with a very low risk victim. She car breaks down, runs out of gas, whatever, goes with somebody she doesn't know. She's increased the risk level. Uh, and to become the victim of violent crime, the body, in all probability, will be disposed uh, uh, outside, uh, leaving very little forensic evidence to, you know, to work with. Plus, it, it also shows the mobility, you know, of the uh, of the offender. Um, 
in the area of, of rape, for example. Because a lot of people think all we do are serial murder cases. We do, do every kind of case, uh, really. And every, you could do assessments. You could do public corruption assessments, police corruption. You could do uh, arson bombings, product tampering, extortion, you know, kidnappings. In the area of rape. They'll come back and they'll say, you know, the uh, the victim was raped. The subject performed sodomy uh, on on the victim. I, what do you mean? Uh, what do you mean? It means something in every different state. I don't know, you know, what you what you mean. For me, and this is what I will tell them. For me to do an analysis of your case, I have to know three components of uh, of the rape case. I have to know the verbal, the sexual, and the physical assault that took place with that victim. Verbally, what was the subject saying when he confronted the victim? What was he saying to the victim, uh, if at all, during the sex act? What did he say when he left the victim? Physically, how much force did he use? Did he use uh, just enough force to control the victim, or was he excessive uh, in the the amount of force? And thirdly, sexually, what did he do sexually to the victim, and in what order did he do these things sexually to the victim? So you you combine it all now in verbal, sexual, physical. You get the script here now, having that information, able to to now decide which type of rape typology we're dealing with, because there are five rape typologies. And um, once we we have that information, we can. I'll give you. We have an extreme. Uh, one extreme on the left would be power reassurance rapist. He's generally someone who lives in the neighborhood. He's calling power reassurance because he's asking the victim how his performance is, asking for reassurance that he's performing well. To way over on the other side, the other extreme on the right side, we'll say, is the sexual sadist. No matter what the victim says, no matter how cooperative the victim will be, just to get out of this this mess with this with this guy, he goes way beyond as necessary. The, the torture, the physical, the language threatens the killer and come back together. You know, so and in between all the other ones too, it's it's all centered around power and anger. But but having information, we can. I mean, we can also determine if the type of maybe prior criminal histories that they would have, whether or not um, uh, this is a transient guy or whether or not this is a local type of um, uh, rapist. Generally, the, the first one I mentioned, the power reassurance type, is someone who is, uh, is in the area, has familiarity with the uh, oftentimes if it's an indoor case, and more times than not they're indoors with the power reassurance, is, is familiar with the residents, may have been there to paint the the walls of the apartment or shampoo the carpets, fix plumbing, or just through voyeuristic activities, has does not want to go in coal, so has this familiarity. So we can, you can determine that, but you got to have the information. You got to you have to educate the police to get the right. And more times than not, they may not have that. They don't have that, and you have to go back. And so victimology. Victimology is, is key, and victimology too could be there's a, uh, a product tampering uh, at a, say a major company. So victimology is not so much the person, but really the the company. You know, what's going on with the company? Why would there be product tampering going on? What uh, what is there any trouble going on? Is there trouble with the unions? Is there trouble with any supervisors and and subordinates or pay cuts or layoffs or anything you know like that? So so that that becomes your victim. Your your victim is uh, is not a person now. It's a it, you know it's a building, and from that we can come up with you know 
always would come up with a, a direction for the investigation. Thank you, John Douglas, for being on our show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Take care. Now. Bye, bye, bye now. Joseph Condro never expressed any remorse for his deeds, and in fact, he vowed to kill again, even behind prison walls. He hinted that there have been other victims, but saw nothing to gain by confessing. Quote, if you hook up a meter to my emotions, they're flatline, Condro said in a prison interview. I don't know where my emotions are. I couldn't give a damn what anyone thinks. Authorities also suspect Condro killed eight-year-old Shyla Silvernails of Calama, whose strangled, nude body was found in a creek bed a day after she vanished on her way to catch the school bus. Silvernail's mother had dated Condro. In another interview, Condro said, quote, What I would like to see result from publication of my story, Condro said he hoped to explain what happened to a good, healthy kid and caused the reader to take better care of their children. Look what I have taken, he said. I took a whole community's children. In 2012, murderer Joseph Condro, who was serving a life sentence for killing two Longview girls, died in the state prison at Walla Walla. Condro died of liver disease due to hepatitis C. He was 52 years old. Kara Rudd's grandfather said he was happy to learn of Condro's death, adding, quote, he's burning in hell right now. I hope he suffered. And to quote the captain, quote, He's a real piece of shit. This week we are recommending The Killer Across the Table by, dare I say, good friend of the show, Garage Army member, the great John Douglas. Check out The Killer Across the Table, unlocking the secrets of serial killers and predators with the FBI's original Mindhunter. This fascinating and haunting expert account helps us understand why the most shocking homicides occur. And you can find that title as well as others at our website, truecrimegarage.com, on the recommended page. If you're looking for more True Crime Garage to listen to or old episodes, download the Stitcher app and check out our show off the record on Stitcher Premium. Until next time, everybody be good, be kind, and don't listen. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.